Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. All right. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good day. Welcome to the Veterans Path Podcast. Today, my guest is Marine veteran and veteran advocate, Gavin Tice. Gavin has such an interesting background. He's gone from traveling chef to Marine to working in the VA, working with military endurance sports, um, to teaching and practicing mindfulness and meditation. And he's also got a very unique LinkedIn marketing tip. Uh, Listen to the pronunciation of his name on LinkedIn uh, there to find out more. In today's conversation, we talk about his getting lost in the sauce at the VA, working in the veteran nonprofit space, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, art therapy, properly reviewing your DD-214, losing your tribe, the stigma surrounding mental health, and the use of mental prep by our ancient warriors, and military endurance sports. Give it a listen. We're happy to have you here, and uh, let's get on with the show. All right. Welcome to the show, man. Great to have you, Gavin. Yeah, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity, John. This is going to be awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. Like, Like I said, right before I hit record, you've got a pretty interesting background and we're going to get into that all. But first, before we get in into your deep like mental health background, actually, I think you've got one of the more deep mental health backgrounds that I've, that I've uh, interviewed. Tell us a little bit about your military time and your family and your upbringing, that kind of stuff. Just give us a little foundation for who Gavin Tice is. Yeah, you know, I uh, had a great family growing up, uh, was from Omaha, Nebraska, spent some time in Texas, and um, I was... My family's been in the military since like 1704 here in the States. So we run um, pretty deep. Like uh, my, my great grand, I don't know, triple great grandfather is uh, Frederick Hambrit. He was like a, a captain at Kings Mountain. So that was kind of our first foray into our, our history. And then uh, the next one would be in the Confederacy. Um, it was Benjamin Franklin Nichols. And back then they were all mountain folk. And um, it was, it was, it's a crazy story, you know, like back then the, the, the folks hit up in the mountains because they were like, we don't want any part of this. We don't have slaves. We don't deal with politics. We're just trying to live off the land. And so the men would all go up into the mountains and then the women would hang quilts on the lines to tell them like when it was safe to come down and when the Confederate conscripts were, were gone. And, uh, Unfortunately, the Confederacy got pretty quick to that and started noticing the patterns changing. So um, my family had been hunting in Tennessee and they came back down the mountain because everything was crystal clear and uh, they got rounded up by the Confederacy and they had uh, pretty good options. They said, look, you can join the Confederacy or we'll uh, burn your farm down and uh, murder all of you. So what do you want to do? And so yeah, unfortunately, great had to, Yeah, you know, not cool. And then, um, I don't know, I've, I've, we've been in World War I. I've got my great-grandfather's uh, original Colt 45. So it is actually 101 years old, still shoots well today. 
And then uh, my grandfather on my mom's side was uh, a Marine. So, um, you know, I was actually a, a wandering chef uh, before I found my way into the lovely Marine Corps. I was traveling all over the country and you know, 9-11 just really started to take its toll on me. Um, and, you know, you keep hearing stuff on the news about good people sacrificing their lives. And, you know, I, I, I kind of came to a strange point. I'd been in a car accident and it kind of ruined my chef career. And I was just sitting around with my grandfather asking him, you know, what was life like in the Marines and this and that. And he was like, well, it was a bit different. And, uh, he, was, uh, he got malaria so many times that he couldn't even contract it anymore. Jeez. And uh, he, he never really opened up about what had happened to him in the Pacific. Um, and then he, you know, he kind of gave me the nod. He said, look, if you, if you feel like 20, 30 years from now, you're going to look back and wonder, you know, should you have done, could you have done, you, you got to just try. He said, you're probably not even able to get in, so don't worry about it. Like any good recruiter would have been. And uh, so, you know, I just walked into my local recruiting station back home in South Carolina. And uh, the guy gave me the big book of like Marine Corps MOSs. And he's like, you can do anything here. Your GT score is great. You've got college. Like, this is good. And I was like, nah, man, just I'll be a grunt. And he's like, no, really, there's a whole book. And I started looking through <laughs> it. And I was like, man, none of this appeals to me. Yeah. So I, I actually, I'm not an open contract guy. I went in under an infantry con, uh, contract and uh, wound up spending a couple extra weeks at Paris Island. I broke my finger in boot camp, which was painful for many, many different reasons. Um, I, I essentially went from being like the top drill guy to not being able to even hit my rifle properly. So I, I was doing a lot of push-ups with four fingers. <laughs> and, um, gosh, you know, I wound up, uh, going to the school of infantry and, um, you know, no disrespect, but I started seeing the cooler jobs are like, here's a machine gun. And I'm like, dude, that 50 cal looks heavy. That ain't for me. And they're like, here's the mortar tubes. And I'm like, ah, death from afar, not cool. And then <laughs> they, they, they showed us like, they're like, and here's the assault men. And this guy came out, he had a mechanical breaching kit on his back and had some C4. And they had the SMA, which is the worst effective weapon ever created. And uh, I was like, dude, I get to play with explosives and break down doors. That's the job I want. And um, I wound up going to 2-2 Golf Company, stationed in Lejeune. And then um, when I walked in, we had taken such high losses from 06 that they forced us to go on what's called a Marine Expeditionary Unit. So my workup translated into getting ready for a Mew and uh, being on aerial contingency battalion and not being able to leave um, for a month at a time when we were on that. And so I, I got to do the whole Mediterranean float experience, visited a number of cool countries and some awful ones. Uh, <laughs> you know, we were off the coast of Djibouti and, uh, you know, I, I made it to Dubai and Petra Jordan and like all over. Oh, yeah. It, it was it was awesome. Uh, the whole time, like we're on the ship, they're like, dude, you guys are theater and reserve. It, it's coming. You guys get, you know, ready. And then um, at, at one point we're cruising up the Gulf of Hormuz. And uh, at that time, the Iranians had captured a bunch of Royal Navy folk and they had us like on board on top of our carrier 
ready. We were the, the mobile action force. And uh, they had us staged at any moment to go and, and intercede on behalf of the Navy. Never happened. Um, but it was funny seeing like the little gunships like floating around, like trying to like, I guess, egg us on. Cause you're like, dude, we're, this is not even a fair fight. Like go away. <laughs> but right. um, we didn't make it in theater. Uh, thankfully, I mean, I, I think we were very lucky. You know, we had no loss of life, no KIA and uh, made it back to Lejeune and then uh, started training for our next cycle, which wound up uh, in 2008, we were in Huseyba, Iraq. So um, Operation Iron Shield had been there a couple years before. And um, we did our seven month deployment there. It was a huge AO uh, covered by a battalion size element. And, um, you know, that was just insane. I mean, uh, we, we didn't have any real issues. There was no real full engagements, but, you know, we, we, we hunted some pretty nasty people down and um, really got to see what life in Iraq was like outside of like Baghdad and, and a built up city. And um, we were right on the border of Syria. So, I mean, like literally our base was like, we could throw rocks into Syria and, um, it, it was, it was a wild time, you know, I mean, I did, uh, I drove, I think 7,000 kilometers we were doing, I, I can't even remember the mileage that we humped and patrolled, but all in all, we, we, we made it home successfully. And then, uh, about 2010, I, uh, decided to do the next best thing of, uh, leave the Marines and, uh, went overseas as a contractor for a couple months, found out the IT guy made an extremely large amount of money compared to my fool guy contractor job. And I said, you know, this is, this is nuts. What am I doing here? So um, I wound up going home and had my first run in with the VA. Um, I got lost in the sauce and they, they literally lost me and I was struggling quite a bit. And then uh, kind of, we had a couple suicides in our unit. And of course that was pretty tough to, to handle. Sure. And I thought to myself, you know, man, you're, you're in a bad way right now, but you, you've got to kind of take that mantle of leadership to show guys what's possible when they walk out of this mess. Cause they had just gone into Afghanistan. So I, uh, I went back home to South Carolina and, and started working with uh, a veteran nonprofit and then um, met the social worker that, that has changed so many people's lives in the VA at least in, in the Greenville uh, Vision 7 Seabock, that I wanted to be her, you know? I said, what do you do? How'd you get here? And she's like, I'm a social worker. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't wanna do food stamps, you know? <laughs> and uh, she goes, I work for the VA, I don't do food stamps, you know? And uh, she, she took me under her wing and, you know, wound up uh, going to school, um, I had a, a pretty great job at Lowe's. I was making like seven thirteen an hour. And someone said, Hey man, you could have a federal job. And I wound up being uh, like the coffee guy at a local vet center. So maybe some people might not know what the vet centers are, but they, they tend to be separated from the, the typical uh, veteran hospital campus or CBOC campus. And um there's, there's kind of a stringent limit of who they allow in there. So you have to have a couple different little checks in the box to be able to go to the vet center. And, you know, I found myself surrounded by guys from Korea, Vietnam, 
um, GW1, GW2, you know, and, and OIF and OEF. And it was awesome. You know, I got to, to see what that was like and, and, and understanding where those guys were coming from and seeing some of the glaring issues that were happening. So I knew I was on the right path and um, I wound up cruising through school pretty quick. I uh, got dual degrees in psychology and social work. Everything was done on uh, veterans, every in you know veteran initiatives. Really dug deep into the, the veteran administration, the veteran health administration initiatives, and um, was still doing some work at a nonprofit. And um, you know that was just kind of the start of how my my everything transitioned, and then. Uh, I wound up getting my first job out. I was the Veterans Workforce Ambassador of the Upstate of South Carolina. I felt like I needed like a monocle and a cape, right? <laughs> like, I'm the Veterans Ambassador. You know, it was crazy. <laughs> and uh, it was a it was a partnership through Goodwill and the nonprofit Upstate Warrior Solutions that I was working with. And uh, my job was was getting post 9/11 veterans work, and it. It was up and down for sure. Sometimes there were people who wanted to work, but they didn't really want to work. And then um, before that, I'd, I'd gone through the peer support specialist certification, which was a pretty tough little course to go through because it really leaves you raw. Everyone, it's, it's a very open environment and um, a job opened up at my local VA to go work as a peer support specialist. So. Wound up, you know, entering in back into the federal system, and um, it, it was it was a fantastic intro into working in mental health. I mean, I wasn't a social worker. I was still trying to decide whether or not I wanted to get my MSW, but it was a good place to start. And um, you know, very quickly, I just loved my job. I mean, I was doing one on ones. I was doing group work, um, and I was sitting there with with Korea vets and. Vietnam vets, my first workshop I did with them, they go, you're here to tell us you're going to cure us of PTSD in six weeks, just go away. And I was like, no, no, no salty guys. I'm, I'm not going to do that. They had had some pretty bad experiences with some other clinicians. And um, very quickly, I, I realized like I had to do something different to connect with them. You know, they loved that I was a Marine. They called me the devil dog. I loved that I'd been infantry. Um, and so I, I started really diving deep into like how, how I could help them. And uh, one book that really came to mind at the time was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Yeah. And um, some of the guys had had, you know, just horrible experiences in, in Korea and in Vietnam. And some of the guys, you know, really hadn't had that much experience, but still had issues. And so I started diving into um, the VA has like a what's called the Mantram program, which is based on mindfulness and meditation and, and getting people influenced in different ways to really think about what they're doing. And then I said, you know, have you guys ever done like artwork? And they laughed at me. They're like, all right, here comes the crayon eater talking about, you know, doing some artwork. But at the time, um, Time magazine had published a pretty interesting article where someone had gone in and worked with a lot of our, our warriors and heroes and making masks of who they really felt like on the inside. And yeah, although I, I couldn't get that done 
and it was interesting, you know, so I went to my boss, my boss was awesome. Um, she allowed me pretty much carte blanche, like whatever I could do. And I said, Hey, can I go to like Hobby Lobby or like an art store and get them to donate stuff? And being a federal institution, there's very limited amounts of like donations that could come in. But uh, so, you know, I just started doing like paint by the number stuff. And um, at the time there was a, a nonprofit that sent like models to veterans. I tried to get them to, to get us some models so the guys could, when they're homebound, do stuff like that. And like models that you're putting together, like yeah. car models, aircraft. Yeah. Nice. And, um, you know, from that, I just started really learning about them. And I learned that, you know, being in the, being in the military, we're good at taking orders and not questioning things. And um, due to my studies, I'd learned a lot about like pharmacology. I, I worked with some um, osteopaths in our psychiatry um, program. And I started really learning that, you know, sometimes like medications don't work perfectly for everyone. And my vets would complain hey, this sucks. Like, and at the time I was taking like sleep meds and the first sleep med they put me on was terrible. I woke up and it was like the worst hangover ever. And I felt like I was in a fog like all day long. And then, you know, I finally just asked, you know, my doctor, hey man, is there something else I could take? He's like, sure. And so I started teaching them like, hey man, you know, you guys as veterans, you have the opportunity that's very different in our, in our clinical setting to actually talk to your providers. You can say, hey, this isn't working for me, or I'm having these side effects. Can't, is there something else we can try? And I said, as long as it seems realistic and plausible, they're going to be open to you trying to find the right best fit for your needs. Some things they can't take away, you know, especially for some folks who, who have some serious mental issues. But I started teaching them that they had a voice. And then I started looking at them, and you know, a lot of these guys nutritionally weren't so good. A lot of them had diabetes. So yeah. I started, you know, I brought in like our dietitians who started talking to them about portion size, portion control, things to substitute. They loved it because the, you know, nutritionists, they never met. Maybe they had one conversation. Um, and so they started looking forward. I'd have, you know, the clinicians come in. I'd have our, um, our folks from the pharmacy come in and just kind of go over like medication management with I started giving them a voice and I, I got to say that I, I hope that they continued on doing stuff like that afterwards because it started to make a change in their reality. And they were coming in with less angry vet material, <laughs> you know, like there were some things I couldn't fix, you know, some things you can walk into the same clinic and have a phenomenal experience and, and you can be in that same clinic and walk in and have a terrible experience just by the people that you're meeting. So um, it, it was great. And then um, due to a family move, I wound up walking into Naval Station Great Lakes in, in a role I, I had no idea about, but um, backing up a little bit, I, I'm sitting there with a lot of people and you're doing these intakes with people and they start opening up and they start telling you about military sexual trauma. Right. And, you know, I'll be honest from a bachelor's degree point of view, very little is, 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 is focused on that. I mean, there's some 
ideas about how to talk to, but that's really higher level stuff. So I started taking a ton of courses through the VA. I mean, I got like a master's level in, in credits from, from just understanding different techniques and diving into um, different thoughts and, and fundamentals of, of how to work with these people. Now, I, I was not a provider, so I couldn't actually give them therapy. I couldn't, but I could go and talk with their actual provider, their clinician. Right. And, you know, it was, it was, it was like, a, it was like a, a rift opened up. I had veterans from as far back as Vietnam all the way to today coming in, talking to me about military sexual trauma and sexual trauma that had happened to them, you know, prior to service, post-service. And um, that was a whole different place for me to begin. And so I wound up at Naval Station Great Lakes um, doing a job I had never even thought of doing, which was I became one of the sexual assault response coordinators for Naval Station Great Lakes. And, you know, when I look back at my time in the Marines, the, the, there was a SAPR program, but I mean, we just laughed about it. You know, we didn't take any of that seriously. I don't know if it was just, you know, knucklehead bravado, but, you know, at least in the Marines, we, we were never around women in our active units, you know? And so it was usually a joke that, oh, you know, here comes the person, we got to do the sexual uh, education piece. Okay, great. Never took it seriously. And then I wound up at Naval Station Great Lakes and Man, what a what a what an interesting program that is. Yeah, well, I I, I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but I, I want to kind of unpack a little bit backwards um, yeah. in regards to in regards to this the SARC, this uh, sexual assault response coordinator, um, and and joking about it when you were back in the Marine Corps, a lot of the MST. Or sorry, the the uh, the military sexual assault rather that occurs the same gender on on same gender, um, and that's that's one thing that a lot of us going in the military don't realize. And when we get that counseling, when we get that training, we're constantly like, "Well, there's not a there's not enough of the opposite gender around here for this to even apply." But in fact, it does uh, because of I mean, sexual assault doesn't just mean um, you know, one gender on the other, it, it could be even like horsing around, you know, like guys do, right? We horse yep. around and, and some of that could quite honestly be sexual assault because the way that you've taken to pass the line, I mean, a lot of horsing around is past the line, but oh, yeah. that's, that's just definitely something I want to make sure our, our listeners hear is that our, our military sexual assault it's 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 a horrible problem overall, but it does happen both ways. You know, uh, one gender on the other, and then the same gender on the same gender. Um, and then going back to um, your your time in the core, and specifically, I want to hit on the time with the Mew when you were in theater, kind of waiting to be activated, and you never were come back you brought everybody back but was there at all a sense in the in the unit that damn all these other folks are in iraq fighting the good fight potentially losing some guys or gals and and we're sitting here 
doing nothing. Was there any kind of sense of that? Oh, for sure. Um, it, it was, it was, it was tough because so we're in this, what's called a LDH five, I think. And, um, we're on a mobile raid platform. So, which means all of our trucks are like, um, on LCACs, hovercrafts for those who don't know what LCAC is. And so it's like in the belly of the ship. And so, you know, at any given time, multiple times, they'd be like, all right, get up, get spun up, you know, and it's like, you got 30 seconds. And we would have all of our gear, we'd have to run to the armory, get our stuff and go get positioned, ready to hop on the LCACs, sometimes for hours at a time. And that starts to really knot you because everyone's just geared up, you're geeked out. Sure. We're just like at an at a ultimate level of ready to roll. And then like two, three hours go by and like, you know, like can't really smoke and joke at that point, like, but you're, you're just like ready to roll. And we had a number of those um, kind of standups and, you know, there was always this like, all right, guys, you know, let's, let's do tactical Iraqi. Let's get ready to prepare for what's, what's inevitably going to happen. We're taking some, you know, extreme casualties right now. You guys are probably rolling and it never happened. You know, mm-hmm. and it was, and in some ways you're like, yeah, man, we're in Dubai. It's, it's crazy. You know, we're seeing like Ferraris and Lamborghinis and just living this crazy dream. But in the back of your mind, you're like, am I going to get back to that ship? And this is a, you know, we're yeah. going to be boom on, on, on the ground. And, you know, we came back and I don't even think we understood like how grateful we should have been for, for, for that deployment because we got a lot of great unilateral training. We trained with um, the Jordanians and, and Kenyans and Djibouti. And we had just, it, it was like, you know, some people would be like, ah, oh, you know, it's just, you guys are still boots. You guys didn't do anything, but yeah, we, we came home and we were ready. We were geared to go, you know, it was yeah. like, let's, let's make this happen today. And, you know, but it made us stronger collectively. I mean, we were, well-nourished. We were physically ready. And my command at that time was unbelievable. I think we're the only unit ever to actually do humps on an LCAC or on a, on an LDH five in the middle of the Mediterranean to the <laughs> point that, I mean, in full battle rattle, you know, and yeah. we got, we're, we're, we're humping and we got, you know, face paint. And like, at one point, I think the BBC news had flown on board our ship and they were like filming these crazy Marines walk in all the way from the lowest uh, end of the ship, all the way to the top, doing a loop on the carrier deck and going back down. I think we did, I don't know, I'm making this up, 10, 15 miles. And like, Jeez. the sailors are like, what is wrong with you guys? Um, our helo attachment, so our sister company, Echo Company, they're just laughing at us. They're like, dude, we're sleeping all day and you guys are humping on that deck. Idiots. <laughs> But I mean, our, our unit at that time, we were actually called uh, the Gulf Company Raiders before Marsoc took on the Raider mantle. Right, right. And um, 2-2 are actually the warlords, but our company was actually given the Raider mantle. It was like, I guess, one of the first times in, in history that we'd been given a secondary title. So, I mean, that put us at, at a priming that, yeah, we, we felt like we hadn't really accomplished much and really had a mission. But it made us dead set to like go into Iraq and do what we needed to do and, and make it 
you know, like get everything that we that we'd hoped for back in our first um, deployment. For sure. Uh, so then you do go back, deploy again, see combat, come back, and you decide, you know what, I, I'm I'm ready to move on and do something else with my life. How was that transition for you? I know you mentioned afterwards the VA lost you. How was that transition just leaving the core? I mean, as everyone knows, I mean, I, I don't think there's probably been some useful things that have happened in, in the past 10 years. I got out in January 17th of 2010. Um, I had been given a, a kind of a day job on my last couple months out. So I was actually like a motor vehicle traffic clerk giving people base passes to get on base. Worst job ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I'd gone through TAPS. And uh, it was funny, I did TAPS like three months before I EAS. And the, the first big problem I came across was I never went through my DD-214 enough. And thoroughly, yeah. I wanted that piece of paper. When I went through the audit, I was just like, let me sign. Like, let me get out of here. Well, I wound up not getting a couple schools on there. And here I am, I'm like out. I really... I, I should have stayed in. I should have gone in like counter intel or something that I, I, I've later on learned that, that would have been a better fit for me. But I, I'd made up my mind, like, I'm going to go contract overseas. That's what I'm going to do. Every infantry guy does. And like a lot of my friends were getting out with no clue. And I'm like, that's what I'm doing. So eight hours a day, I'm like plugging into every job board and, and everywhere I could find information to get there. So I got my first job offering it was as a designated marksman. Um, for those un uninitiated, that does not mean sniper by any shape of the form. Um, in the Marines, it's just another little token toolbox. And um, they call me and they're like, let's go. You know, like, here, here's your job. Here's the big time money for this. Let's get you rolled out in two weeks. And uh, you go through like an in-doc training and as long as you pass off, you go. Well, like about a week before that, I got a call from my recruiter and she said, yeah, so I was going through your DD-214. You said you had been to DM school, which is a requirement for this job, but it's not on your DD-214. I'm like, of course it is. I look at it and I'm like, oh crap, it's not on there. And I'm like, uh, okay, what do you suggest I do? She goes, well, I, I just call your admin staff and you know get that all fixed or just get us a piece of paper saying you went through there. Okay. So I call uh 22 golf company admin and I'm like, yeah, uh, this is corporal Tice. I just need to get uh, the dates and a certificate from my DM school. And the guy just started laughing. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I've got this job and I need that paperwork. And he just like, I don't know who you are. And he hung up. <laughs> he's like, so I'm like talking to a friend of mine who, who's one of the sergeants in my unit. He's like, dude, call the schoolhouse. So I call the schoolhouse and it was almost comical. I call them up and I'm sure things have changed now, but like I explained to them my situation. They're like, dude, that's an awesome job, but we have no records. We didn't keep any, your company clerk has what records we have. And I'm like, well, they just laughed at me. And he goes, yeah, that's about all I can tell you. So I lost that job and, and wound up taking one that was much reduced in, in salary. So, I mean, I, I'd been guys. It, it definitely, you know, like it, 
that was a, a fantastic world to be in. But man, I mean, I wound up in the green zone. I was in Baghdad. I was on Camp Stryker. I had uh, 120 Ugandan guards underneath me. I was a watch officer. And then I transitioned to a rapid response team. So any kind uh, inbound and direct fire came in, we were responding. But, you know, like all that money is great as long as you're alive to spend it. But like sometimes- There's a reason you get paid well. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't work, work well. And, you know, the transition was crazy. I mean, I'd been, I, I knew how to make a resume. I knew how to dress for success. Um, I remember, you know, learning a little bit about my GI Bill, but I didn't pay much attention. School was definitely not on my fourth. It was like the farthest thing from my mind. I was like, dude, I've been locked up for four years in an institution. I'm out. <laughs> and um, uh, I'm sorry. Did, did, did you have kids at the time? I had one. I had one son. Yeah, he was, um, let's see, 2010. So he was eight years old. I was recently divorced. So I was just you know, I was all over the place. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the only other option was like, Hey, you go be a cop. And I'm like, there's no way, man. Like things weren't even politically as bad as they are now with, with, with anger towards police. I won't get into politics, but at that time I was just like, there's no way. And, you know, I, I didn't even consider like marshals or any, or the FBI or anything. Cause I still didn't have a degree. And, um, you know, there was no talk about six months out, like start planning. And of course, now that's like a year out. If you know you're getting out, you need at least connecting. You need to start talking to people. You you want this job, find someone who does it, get five minutes on their on their calendar, give them a cup of coffee and find out what they love and what they hate about it. Um, as I found out when I worked in the VA, some people had been a year into their next job post-military. And they're like, this is not it. You know, I had, I had a full bird colonel who'd flown for 20 years and came to me. Um, he had been out, he was fresh out. And he was like, I don't want to ever manage another person. And I don't want to fly planes. What should I do? <laughs> you know, master's degrees, whole world ahead of him. And, you know, I, I wound up hooking him up with someone in the franchise world. And he wound up buying a bunch of ATM machines. But um, I, I think there is a, you know, the, the transition is, is just so hard for anyone to really give that much context because you're just thinking about checking your boxes and getting out clean and going through the VA and it's a very rushed process and there's, you walk away and it's like you, you've lost, I mean, everyone says, you know, we lose our team, we lose our tribe when we walk away because right, right. people are still in that world. People have transitioned out before you. Um some people you'll never hear from again that you spent years with. And some people will be, you know, calling you every day trying to figure out what's next. So if you don't plan, you, you can't imagine that you're going to succeed for sure. I think yeah. that's the really, and thankfully, you know, LinkedIn in our military community there, I mean, veterati is, is a huge thing. And, you know, people like what you're doing, which is connecting people and, and helping other people to understand like this transition is no joke. It's definitely not easy. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe going into business is something for you. Go check out Bunker Labs. There's so many different outlets out there. The one thing you can't do is ignore the help that's, that's offered. Right, right. 
And I think another piece, and this will kind of lead back into the LCSW and the psychology side, is <clears throat> I don't think there's a whole lot of prep mentally for that transition, right? There's interview prep, what to wear to an interview, resume prep, um, preparing all your administrative stuff in the military so that you're set up out, out on the outside. But there's not a whole lot of, hey, take deep stock in who you are and prepare for a massive change mentally in, in the organization or the institution that you're about to leave. And like you mentioned, losing your team, losing your tribe, that's, that's a tough piece. Uh, luckily, I mean, I was a part of Veterans Path um, as an intern preparing for my transition. And, uh, and I spoke with other veterans, veteran leaders within the organization, veterans who had gone through our programs. Um, and they told me about the mental change, the mental prep that you need to do. And even with that prep, it's still difficult. It's, it's like you're kind of in a, in a car and you're heading towards this crash and you know it's going to happen and you can only do so much prep. <laughs> and eventually you're going to crash right and sure. uh, and that and that crash how you come out of that is uh, is determined by the prep but you're still going to come out um i won't say damaged because that's not the right word but you're going to come out feeling it you're going to come out feeling it um so that's that's how i want to leave that um as far as going to the lcsw world and the psychology world you also mentioned kind of in our our pre uh interview prep there's some meditation and mindfulness in that world that you're a part of. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, so when I'm sitting there in front of these guys, trying to figure out how to really connect with them and how to help them connect with who they were and their experiences that they had and where they are today, it was just so difficult um, within like the typical idea about like, and, and one, once again, I was in a counselor. So I'm, I'm holding peer workshops. So everything from the peer support specialist view is we're, we're teaching from our own um, toolbox and things that we've done that has helped us in our transitions. And, you know, it, it was interesting. I, I saw a large amount of these guys came back from Vietnam, tried to walk away from that experience as best as they could. Some did it better than others went into business, had families, had lives, and, and really worked themselves out of thinking about what Vietnam or Korea or whatever was to them. And then they retired. And they had a lot of time on their hands now. Kids grown up, married, sold businesses, retired. Now, you know, golf wasn't really a big deal for some of them. For some it was. Fishing was great. But now it's quiet. Now their mind has time to start taking uh, control of their thoughts. And um, they had ser serious agitation and you know, a lot of depression that had been creeping on them for many, many years started to become much more um, in their face. And I had learned you know, just about being mindful and um, I think our program had kind of a, a unique thing that we did, which was um, check your thoughts um, or catch them, check them, and then change them. That's kind of like the simplest way to do it. So I started teaching them. I'm like, look, 
you know, you, you guys are getting mad in the car, right? Because someone cut you off. Well, why are you getting mad? You know, where are you going? You, you Collectively, you guys are retired. You have all the time in the world to go where you're going. So let's take a step back and, 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 and catch that thought of why I'm being angry. Because then it turned into like full-blown road rage. Like one guy was like, I go buy coffee cups and throw them at people. Like, Dude, that's going to get you shot. Like that, not a good thing. And so I'm like, all right, so you're going to catch those thoughts now. And then you're going to check them. Should I really be this angry right now? Like what happened to me right now is, is the level of emotion that I'm exhibiting really productive. Is it, does it actually measure up to what happened? And of course they're like, no. And I'm like, all right. And then you, you got to take steps to change those thoughts. So I said, look, man, you know, all of you guys have probably had kids you know, who knows why that person cut you off? Maybe they're, they're hustling home because, you know, the babysitter's got to leave and they had to leave work or, you know, there's an emergency or, you know, start giving people the benefit of the doubt of why they did these things to you. Be compassionate, you know, leave earlier. And of course they're like, well, I get everywhere 15 minutes early. And I'm like, okay, keep that in the thought process then. (laughs) But it also like collectively came down to, you know, them talking to their significant others. You know, they start squabbling about common things or maybe, you know, they're, they're getting nagged at and then they just, those emotions creep up so quickly and they just fire something off. And then they're spent spending hours later trying to fix it and apologize. And I'm, I'm like, look, you, you have to be more aware of where you're at. And so, some of the guys who struggled with deep um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Then it came down to the mindfulness training. Hey, you know, maybe for me, I I get triggered by smells. It's the most awful thing in the world. I could be driving somewhere and all of a sudden, like all the hair on my body pricks up and I'm like smelling dead bodies and things. It's, and I, I can't even breathe. It like suffocates me. And I had to learn how to control this. You know, and my wife like would look at me and be like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, ah, you know, like I can barely talk right now. And it came down to being in tune with the present. And, you know, that's really what I, what I took to them was I said, look, when these things happen to you, if you can, if you're not driving, you know, find a place where you can get in touch with your reality. Start with your toes and start feeling like where you're at in this world, you know, and, and go all the way up to your head. And then I want you to use your other senses. What can you see? What can you smell? You know, maybe if you're on the ocean, you can taste the salt in the air, you know, and start trying to just be in the here and now and be present versus like your mind floating back to those dangerous, dark places that none of us really should spend time in. Um, And it was amazing over time. You know, I couldn't do this in one day, right? These were like half hour, 45 minute sessions. So I gave them a little taste, told them how it worked with me, share, you know, and be open and vulnerable about what what happened with me, which was nothing comparable to these guys' stories and experiences. But at least they saw that I was vulnerable and, and open enough to share with them. And then, you know, we would get to a point where after a couple sessions, we could spend five minutes digging into it deep. And of course, there was always like, this isn't working. I'm like, look, guys, this is, this is a journey. This is not a sprint. 
Like you guys have to actually practice and, you know, get a journal, start putting things. And of course they're like, oh, I'm not going to write my thoughts and my love. I'm like, no, man, just <laughs> journal about the things that are happening to you. Maybe you can start seeing patterns. Maybe, you know, these are things I said, look, create a worry journal before you go to bed. One of the most phenomenal things I've ever seen. A lot of people have anxiety about getting, you know, the next day and, and the next week and like whatever's going on in the world. And the worry journal, and I don't know even where I found this, but it's like before you go to bed, one of the last things you should do besides all the good sleep hygiene methodologies that are out there, if you have something that's bothering you, write down in that journal what it is that's bothering you. And I mean, just get it out and then close the book on the day. And some of them just laughed at me. But sure enough, I, I, I went out and bought on my own dime journals for everybody. They took them. Good man. Hey, you know, it, it, was, it was no big deal. And, and it worked for some of them. They said, man, this is actually improving my sleep, you know. And just getting the, the, the collective group of guys being open and saying, this is starting to work for me. Some guys were still like, really, you know, never going to work. And then, you know, I'd have private one-on-ones with them and they'd be like, I don't want to tell the group that that does work. You know, like (laughs) it was hilarious. They had like an image that they wanted to continue to portray. Yep. It's that bravado again. It is, it is. And it's ego. And I think we, a lot of us want the quick fix. And it's kind of like, you know, everybody, you know, would love to just stare in the gym and become, you know, muscled and ripped, but it doesn't work. You know, you got to go in and you have to pay the, the, the dues and, and spend the time in there and actually building and developing those skill sets. And that's what I found, you know, like for me, it was constantly trying to figure out how I could develop these skill sets within myself. And I still use them today. Nice. I'm, you know, I'm not going to ever give up these things because I need them. You know, we all do. We all do. For sure. Yeah. Yes, we all we all need it. It was just um, so many of us don't know about it or going back to the people who didn't want to admit it in the group. There's a stigma about it. Hey, you're practicing, you're practicing what you're being mindful and you're meditating. Uh, Whatever, weirdo. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, and I I think it's gaining more acceptance um, now, which is great to see. And it's important that it does. That's one of the reasons that we do the show is to break the stigma around it. Um, because I had that perception myself and I was a skeptic. And when a counselor recommended it to me, I was like, okay, weirdo. <laughs> I've, I've got some real stuff going on. I don't know about being mindful in meditation. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, he talked me into it and um, he did a great job of selling it in uh, kind of couching it under performance improvement. And I think that's where a lot of military members kind of start grasping at it. They're like, oh, this is going to help me to be better in, at my job or perform better in X, Y, or Z. And then the other byproducts come. You know, you start sleeping better. You start sleeping better, you perform better. You start performing better, you start feeling better about yourself. You, uh, you know, the, the depressive thoughts, the negative self-talk, some of that stuff goes away the stress goes down, all that other stuff, it, it just builds on itself. So anyway, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm loving it. I want to add ahead. one thing on that. I, I think it's it's phenomenal you, you bring up the stigma issue because 
some of the greatest warriors in history. You know, I mean, I, I always collectively think of the Samurais. Yep, me you too. Know, this was, these guys were some of the best multifaceted warriors that have ever been, been on a battlefield. And not only did they appreciate the martial aspect and learning their combat arts, but they took the time to, you know, do tea ceremonies, calligraphy, painting. And hey, they were mostly based on a Buddhist philosophy, which was being in tune with oneself. And, you know, not, not that I'm a religious guy, um, or I should say a religious expert, but, you know, the Templars prayed, they had mindfulness. Like, we sit here and we're like, dude, yeah, you know, like, I'm a Marine and I'm a crayon eater and I'm a grunt and whatever, I'm kicking down doors. But these are practices that have been established for, for hundreds, if not thousands of years of actually, you know, taking the time to understand where you're at. And I think combating the negative, you know, feedback and, and the self-talk that we have is, is the biggest problem. I mean, I think our, our warriors today, definitely, oh, meditation. They think yoga mats and, and tight pants and like, <laughs> you know woo woo music but like it's so Which is not much a, a bad thing but that's not the only way you can do it right yeah uh, yeah so yep definitely and and i also think about those warriors like the samurai templars they're preparing themselves for combat for battle they're clearing their mind and they're going to be better on the battlefield because of it rather than like beating your chest, hyping yourself up, drinking a bunch of mon bun bunch of monsters. And I mean, which, I mean, hey, that, that works to some degree, but it, it gets you into the wrong mindset. Yep. And if you're thinking clearly on the battlefield, you're going to be a better, a better operator. Um, and not, and when by better operator, I'm not meaning you're going to shoot better necessarily. You, you probably will, but you may not shoot when you don't have to. You may not escalate a situation that doesn't need to be escalated, and ultimately that saves lives, um, and and can can win can win wars. So, hey, Gavin, this is this has been awesome, man. Uh, I, <laughs> I I appreciate the conversation. You made it super easy for me, man. I I love it. So uh, thank you for your time thus far. Um, yeah. If, if uh, you know we got a few more minutes, what have you not spoken about that you want to make sure our listeners hear? Uh, yeah, so one, one of the ways that we connected was you had asked for folks who'd had a little bit different bent on uh, outside of the mindfulness and meditation. And, you know, what it all comes down to is it's trying to find the next mission. And we can find that in our work or by, by being in a nonprofit and by volunteering. But, you know, I, I stumbled into the military endurance sports um, group. And I, I, was, I was on vacation at St. Croix in uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands. And all of a sudden, the island became full of, like, all these people. And, like, you know, what I, what I now understood was triathlete apparel. And the body types of all these people were, were definitely very different. <laughs> and I'm like, what's going on here? And, you know, of course, the first guy I talked to, he's from, like, the Netherlands. He's like, oh, we're here for an Ironman. And I'm like, oh, my God, that sounds awful. <laughs> um, but I started 
looking at these people and they've all got bikes and they're all, you know, looking cool and swimming. And I dug into it. And I'll tell you, you know, it's a very individualized journey. And the when I dove into it, it took me like six months to actually take some real interest into it. But it kind of kept gnawing at me that I could be doing something outside of just being in the gym lifting weights because my joints were starting to hurt pretty bad. And um, it was interesting. I ran into this podcast and this guy interviews people who chose something else to be a pro in other than Ironman, right? It's one thing to listen to like all the pros talk about. It's another thing to listen to the, the DJ who gave up smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, living the DJ life, um, overweight, turns into an Ironman amateur, like great athlete in less than a year. We're hearing like the stories about the people who couldn't even swim. And they just decide one day, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go do this thing where I'm gonna swim forever. And then I'm gonna run and, and, and I'm gonna get on a bike and I'm gonna just torture myself. And I, I kept listening to these stories and I'm like, man, you know, this is amazing. Started watching some videos on YouTube and you start seeing, you know, people who are just struggling. And it's such an interesting competition that, that only you yourself can do, right? You can train with a million other people, you can coach. Um, but at the end, it's like an internal struggle to actually finish across the, the line. And so I finally took, took, a, took a step into that. And I hated running in the Marine Corps. I never thought I was like the fastest guy in the world. I still can't get back to like my, my, my average, which was like 19 minute uh, 5Ks. But I started diving into this strange world that's triathlete and triathlon experience. And man, you know, for me, the first thing I noticed was the swimming. I've always excelled at swimming. And swimming is the one place where I can shut my mind down completely. I mean, you could buy like headphones to listen to underwater. I think that's crazy. But, you know, there you are. You, you've just got you and you're either in a lake or you're in a swimming pool. And you've got your routine of what you need to do. And you just start out really slow, a couple hundred yards, maybe the first time. And then you build up, build up, build up. But it's the quiet that I like just seek to have because, you know, I'm, I'm a busy guy. I work in sales and coaching and training. I've got kids. I've got a wife. I've got all these things to do. But, man, I can get in that pool. And if you start thinking too much, you're just going to drown or you're going like, to start drinking water. And I found it to be such a good, calming place to be. And then I started running a lot more and getting into that. And I actually listened to, it's, it's tacky, but I listened to like a lot of old school Marine Corps cadence running. <laughs> and it's almost like the, 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 the primal part of my mind remembers exactly what I'm supposed to do during those runs. And most of them, you hear people, you hear the dog tags jangling. And I almost feel like the drill instructors are by me. And I can run at those paces for a long time, which is actually pretty fast. I think my, my typical uh, route was an, uh, I could do eight miles in an hour and a half by running nice. cadence runs. It's not super fast. It's not super slow. But I could maintain that. Yeah. And then, you know, just enjoy the rest of my day. And um, the Military Endurance Sports Network is a great 
group. Um, they, they don't only just do triathlete. They, they do um, uh, cross country stuff where, you know, you're, forget, they do like enduro sport racing, but I wouldn't say it's like Spartan stuff, but it's more like the adventure racing. Um, they've got a huge um, group of our um, veterans that, that, you know, are, are, are severely wounded warriors. So they've got their the para folks in there that, that have modified kit. And um, you also get exclusive access to a lot of different suppliers with military discounts and veteran discounts. And then they also open, um, they have a lot of great events that they sponsor that you can go to. And then if you're actually really good at this stuff, which I am definitely not, um, you can actually become like a sponsored athlete through them. Very cool. And um, for those who are looking for a new direction or just want to get in there, I mean, you can get free training, you can get um, you know, whole training maps and things like that. You can talk to people that have been there and done that through this association. It, it's a fantastic place to be. So if you're tired and your joints hurt like mine do, and, and you're like thinking like, man, what's the next step? What's my next individual competition I can get into? And I, I love the sport Spartan stuff, but some days I feel like I did that like every week in the Marine Corps. <laughs> So that it doesn't really like flip my boat anymore, but I, I found that the triathlon experience is really cool. And it's, it's humbling to get passed by an 80 year old, you know, <laughs> on a race course, which happened to me in my first half Ironman um, and probably will happen to me the rest of my time doing it. But I, I love seeing that people are still doing this well into what would be considered like you know, the, the phase of their life that they should be sedentary. So get out there and give it a shot. Nice. I love it. I'll make sure that's in the, uh, in the show notes when, when this gets published. And then cool. uh, as far as getting in contact with you, if someone has questions about what it is you're doing or about the military endurance sport um, group, um, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Yeah, find me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm pretty uh, prolific on there. Um, you can just find me at LinkedIn at Gavin Tice and, um, you know, happy to, to share time with anybody. If you listen to the pronunciation of my name, you might get a free coaching call with me. So whatever <laughs> that might look like, hey, it's good marketing space, I think. Yeah. But yep. uh, you can find me there or uh, you can email me at um, Gavin Tice um, at Sandler.com if you just want to connect with me there. Cool. That's, that's where to get me right on well thanks gavin i appreciate your time today man this has been uh, a lot of fun a lot of, uh, like i said you made it <laughs> super easy for me and I, I very much appreciate that and uh, i i know your your stories your both your lcsw your psychology your marine corps uh everything that you've done is is going to resonate with some of our listeners out there and that's that's the important part here so thanks for your time man until we speak again stay safe and still health stay healthy all right, John, my pleasure. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives.